You are listening to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote, with Rabbi Jesse Olitsky and friends, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about this and other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. And don't forget to vote. Welcome to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote. I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky of Congregation Bethel in South Orange, New Jersey. Each week from now until Election Day, we focus on a different issue at stake in November's election on the local, state, and federal level, and how the values and ethics of our tradition guide our perspective on this specific issue. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Abby Liebman, President and CEO of Mazon, a Jewish response to hunger, to talk about food insecurity in this country and what's at stake in November's election. Thanks, Abby, so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Jesse. Thank you for inviting me. Certainly. Abby and I met uh, a couple of years ago in person when I was privileged to join representatives from Mazon on the Hill to lobby to make sure that SNAP benefits and expanded SNAP benefits were included in the Farm Bill. Uh, Abby, can you speak a little bit about SNAP benefits and Mm -hmm. specifically the need to support them in legislation? Absolutely. So, you know, before the pandemic, I used to have to explain what SNAP not only stood for, but that it used to be called food stamps. I feel as if everybody in America has become acutely aware of what it is that SNAP is and its potential. And we have to talk about its potential because I think even from the moment it was created in the you know, sort of the modern versions of this that happened about uh, 40 or 50 years ago, um, it's never been designed to be a program that fully pays people enough money to buy all of their groceries. So SNAP is it stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And that is really how our government has always viewed it, is a supplement to whatever other kinds of resources you can bring to the table to feed yourself and your family. For many of the people who are on SNAP, it is the lifeline that actually provides them with any kind of nutritious food, period. And its title is a part of a lexicon of of almost misnomers, if you will, that tried to convey something that is different from what the truth of this benefit is. So it really forms the very strong base of the nutrition safety net in this country. And it's meant to provide people with a vehicle for purchasing food with dignity and choice. So it's an EBT card. Uh, it, it is loaded automatically uh, at midnight, no, 12.01 a.m. on Um, the first of the month, and uh, the benefits can be used typically to purchase groceries in a grocery store. Um, You can use it in, you know, sort of multi-purpose stores like Walmart or Target where they actually sell food, but it has to be used for the purchase of food. In the pandemic, there have been some interesting challenges that have come up because of the nature of the way in which this program was first designed. That is to be used as you check out at a physical grocery store. Can you speak more about that and those challenges? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. So most of people in this country who took seriously that the pandemic was the result of a very contagious virus, understood that they needed to shelter at home, that going out into the world and being exposed to multiple other individuals was not a good strategy for staying healthy. Remembering that a large percentage of those people who receive food stamps are either elderly or disabled, meaning that they are higher risk and they're more fragile. More not Yes, exactly. And they may not have been able to find a way to get to a grocery store, even in good times. But at this point in time, it's a very risky behavior. So the USDA uh, did offer states the opportunity to seek a waiver to be able to use that SNAP card, that EBT card, to purchase groceries online. It took weeks into the pandemic for them to do this. And you have to ask permission 
So virtually every state in the United States has now asked for that permission and most have been granted very quickly. Some of them they delayed, they took their time, they didn't, there's a little bit of politics in this, I think. But nevertheless, there is what's called a waiver to allow individuals to use their SNAP benefit for online purchases, but only for certain vendors, Amazon um, and uh, Walmart among them. Um, in some parts of the country, others are in that mix as well. Um, it's, a, it's a vital shift in the administration of the program. The benefits themselves are also based on what Congress was able to do. They expanded the benefit so that people could get more of the, the SNAP benefit than they had been in the past. Um, and what was that benefit prior to the pandemic? Well, the benefit works out to be about $1.40 per person per meal. So depending on the number. Not much. Yeah, it's nothing. It's very, very, I mean, for most of us, that's more than what a cup of coffee costs if we go out and get a cup of coffee. So those benefits evaporate pretty quickly. Um, and what we've seen is that um, the actions by Congress that moved people to the maximum benefit. And the maximum benefit isn't something that's available to everybody because there's a very complicated calculation that goes into how much benefit you're going to get under this program, including the number of dependents, the other resources that you have or may have access to, so that it, it offered people a boost when they really needed it. What was the challenge of that that is still unresolved? If you already were poor enough that you were getting the maximum benefit, you got nothing more. So it, there's... <laughs> People who are struggling the most technically got the least out of what Congress was trying to propose as a boost. So these are complicated challenges that have persisted throughout the history of this program, but which the pandemic threw into high relief. And as we see millions, literally millions more people in need of this benefit, we understand why it is beautifully designed, frankly, to expand when the need expands. So that's the joy of this entitlement program, is that the more people who need it, the more people can get it. There is no limit, an artificially created budget that would prohibit more people from accessing SNAP. So they're not trying to move dollars around from one group of individuals to another. It, it's available if you need it, uh, which will cause it to cost more money, but. Congress always appropriates money for this based on you know, maximum estimates. I have no idea what's happened to those in this context, but that's why additional money was appropriated through the COVID-19 relief bills that Congress passed. I found it fascinating when I, I joined you uh, mm -hmm. a few years ago on the Hill, I was actually surprised, my own ignorance, that SNAP benefits were wrapped up in the farm bill altogether. Right, um, the farm bill, so, the Farm Bill has a really interesting history. The Farm Bill is a huge omnibus piece of legislation that Congress passes every five years. So it's an authorization and a programmatic uh, creation that happens only every five years. And it covers forestry, it covers water, it covers nutrition issues, and of course it covers agriculture and farming. Um, and those are all of a piece in large part out of how legislation gets made in this country. It was a big compromise. So you had the farmers in rural America that were mostly um, you know, represented by Republicans in Congress. And then you have urban centers that had poor people in them, mostly being represented by Democrats. And as the two parties negotiated this piece of legislation, what you can see is that it's the both ends of the food system, right? It's the producers and the consumers. And then it mo moved into a space of thinking about all of the things that impinge and affect all of those systems. So there's titles about, as I said, about forestry, there's titles about water, there it's, it's like kitchen sink kind of legislation, but it covers 
a huge part of the natural resources infrastructure of this country. And the nutrition title, which is a big part of the bill, is designed to be the, the answer to what happens to the end product, right? Where's the consumer in this? And the consumer in this is those people who are in some way more vulnerable and they need access to that which is being produced. And so the, you know, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is a huge agency, one that flies more under the radar, I think, than a lot of others. Um, and it's, it's certainly seeing a moment now when it has a big spotlight being shown on it and what it does. Interestingly, I remember a number of years ago when I participated in what was then called the food stamp challenge, where mm -hmm. a number of politicians, uh, rabbis and other clergy uh, challenged ourselves to better understand what's at stake with SNAP benefits by uh, living on a budget of, of food stamps, of SNAP. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, as you said, approximately a dollar and 40 cents per meal per person for a full week. And when we talk about both sides of the food, the food spectrum from the farmer to the consumer, any store I went to, it was clear that my money was better spent or went a lot farther in a bag of cheese doodles or cheesy boots, you know, that <laughs> right. did with a cantaloupe or watermelon. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of... Um... There's a paternalistic sense, um, certainly on the part of some members of Congress, but I think also in part in some parts of the general public, right? And when they think about how people are not purchasing healthy food with their SNAP dollars, and they need to be regulated more in terms of what they buy and how they buy. And there are no restrictions on them in terms of food products. It can't be prepared foods, which is another thing that states sought waivers for, by the way, with the pandemic, which many of which were granted, um, because you cannot buy like a cooked rotisserie chicken with your SNAP benefits. You can buy a raw chicken, but you can't buy anything cooked. No hot food. Um, so what you see is poor people actually making very high level, thoughtful financial decisions. In the, in the land of purchasing, it would use up, you were talking about like 30, $32 a week, right? So you, you do grocery shopping for a week and that's usually the snap challenge is usually about a week long. And you go into the grocery store and you think, if I buy the ingredients for a ratatouille, it will be enough for maybe two nights and it will use up my entire budget. If on the other hand, I buy five boxes of mac and cheese and they're each a buck each. I'm like sitting pretty for that's five meals right there. A lot of what people learn from the SNAP challenge is also the, the boredom that you can experience with only being able to afford certain foods. This is why there's also this counterintuitive crisis around obesity among the poor mm -hmm. because the foods that are most accessible to them tend to be high fat, high salt, high sugar. Yeah. And they are not healthy for us, but they fill you up. And you know, when you're thinking about hunger, you are thinking about food all the time. I don't know, I've done the SNAP challenge. I don't know about you, but I was in the middle of breakfast, I was planning how I was gonna manage sure. my lunch. All I did was think about food. One of the all first things I cut out was my coffee. I was cutting yeah. out some of those staples to my diet, uh, the snacks that, that I would have right. regularly throughout the day. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, as an aside, as somebody who keeps kosher, it was much more difficult when I was sticking to things that solely had a, a kosher symbol on it and right. were, were supervised, especially right. well, when we talk about meat and cheeses, the essential proteins. Right. And those tend to be more expensive. So you can see also for people who are on any kind of, of a restricted diet for health reasons, people that for the elderly in this country, this is a huge concern because for them, they, their medications often require that they take them with food and certain kinds of food. And if you're struggling with hypertension and high cholesterol and or diabetes or anything that becomes a chronic illness that becomes much more serious as we age, 
you can see that you need to make different kinds of choices and you can't always afford them. The, the other thing that I have to say about the SNAP challenge is that I was so struck by the artificial nature of what was happening to me. I could go to three different grocery stores, which is actually what I ended up doing to find the best price for things. Cause I didn't have to worry, I have a car, I could buy gas, I could still pay my mortgage. You're I, living I, in a food desert. Right. Well, you know, food desert is sort of an, it is, yes. The interesting thing about food deserts are that it's all of a sudden, it's just really about transportation. Can you speak more about what a food desert is exactly? Yeah, now there's a, this is one of those problems that is uh, sort of defined by what a potential solution could be. So technically the definition of a food desert in its original iteration was that it was a place where there was no grocery store. There are like no supermarkets, no large um, opportunities to purchase fresh um, or, or even, you know, com- sta- shelf stable commodities. Um, and you had like small bodegas or small convenience stores and that's it. And a lot of fast food. So that's considered a food desert. Um, that's kind of an odd way to think about this. It is places in this country where you don't have easy, ready access to the opportunity to purchase groceries, however you would choose to purchase them. Right? So in rural America, you find this often because things are very far spread out, right? And there are, um, there are other options for people to get food, but they just can't get them at either reasonable prices or with the kind of diversity of food offerings that many of us just take for granted. Sure, they're not going to three stores, as you said, to find out what's on sale. Right, and because they don't even have one that they can go to. Um, But the other, you know, challenges here are that you you think about how for people that are struggling financially, they're managing all kinds of financial pressures. And what SNAP is designed to do is to say, here's something we're going to take off of that anxiety plate. We will... give you this allotment of money so that we know you need to eat. Food is so basic. It is the most essential human need. And we will ensure that you have the ability to provide some sort of stability in your life as you move through a whatever period of struggle this is, which is also part of the mythology about food stamp benefits. The vast majority of people in food stamps stay on for about three months. Um, it is really meant to be a bridge that tides them over. And it's it this mythology that people like choose to be on government benefits <laughs> because it's so much easier or in some perverse way more financially beneficial is just absurd it's absurd think about what little money we are talking about here and it, you know there's a there's, people don't always have a transactional relationships with their jobs right they they go to work because it provides them with purpose and dignity, self-respect. Sure. It uses their education and experience and it's, it's stimulating to their intellect and their creativity. And this assumption that they, we only go to work for a paycheck is sort of the reverse of why I think most people go to work. They go to work looking for something out of that work experience and that getting paid for it is vital to them because it is again a reflection of their self-esteem and self-respect but it isn't the simple transaction where it's just about the money so therefore you would rather just have money instead of go to work nobody makes that choice um yeah, I just thought of something else that happened when I was on the food stamp challenge. I did it with my son who was then in graduate school and um, he was living with me. Um, and I was very concerned because, you know, there was only so much food in our house and he had a friend over and he gave the friend a banana. <laughs> I was so aggravated. Um, you know, and when his friend left, um, I said to him, how could you do that? We have like now only two bananas for the rest of the week. He said, what do you want me to do? Justin really is on food stamps. How am I supposed to say I'm doing this fake out game and I can't give you a banana? And I was like, wow, I am so embarrassed. 
And the mortification of that moment brought home for me what both the benefit and the detriment of doing in it a small experiment like that. Yeah. It felt like this is his life. And um, also interested me that I didn't even know uh, until that moment. Uh, You know, he's always well-dressed, well-presented, you know, he's, uh, he was a musician. He um, was working. He was, you know, it's just, um, it was a startling reminder that this is affecting real people in real time. And at this moment, we all probably know people who are, are seeking food stamps. They may not have gotten them yet, but they're at least trying to get them because as we watch unemployment rates soar, every one of those people is now what we would think of as food insecure, meaning they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Prior to this pandemic, uh, it seems that SNAP benefits was a divisive issue. Uh, Like many things in this country, a partisan issue when it certainly shouldn't be, when we lobbied Congress uh, to to expand SNAP benefits in the Farm Bill, we were meeting with Republicans and Democrats. We were making Mm -hmm. sure that it was very much, should be seen as a bipartisan issue. Mm -hmm. Why do you believe it to be seen by some as so partisan? So for most of its history, the nutrition safety net as a whole was considered a bipartisan experience because it came out of work done by then senators Robert Dole and George McGovern that Robert Dole was asking questions about um, a documentary that had been on CBS about hunger in America. And he said he just never, he didn't believe it. I think that was kind of an powerful that. documentary that also talks about yes. agricultural workers in this country. Yes, it's a very, it was a stunning uh, piece of television. And, uh, and George McGovern um, approached Marion Wright Edelman, and she helped put together a tour for the two of them to go into the South um, and see this in real life. And Bob Dole came back from that experience a confirmed advocate for providing nutrition support for the poor in this country. And he and McGovern crafted what is the modern day version of food stamps. Food stamps have been here for a long time. They really came out of the Great Depression, but they were really stamps in those days. Um, At this moment in time, what we uh, experience is a program and system designed by those two senators. And I would say for generations, it was, it was just a part of what we did as a country. There was no notion that this was a product of one party's position or another. No one believed people should go hungry. Things became more partisan in um, the more recent Congresses. Um, there are many people who are far more savvy about politics and political science than am I that can explain how, or theorize at least, how we came to this point. But this did, these programs did get caught up in some of that. Although, in the last debates about the Farm Bill, which happened in the, the prior Congress, so that was a Congress in which both the House and the Senate um, were Republican majorities. This was in uh, 2017. Yes. Right, what is it? Yes, yes. And, um, Pat Roberts, who's a senator from Kansas, he's a Republican, and he's the chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee. He opened the hearings into the Farm Bill by saying, we are not going to touch SNAP. It's not broke. We're not, we don't have to fix it. SNAP is an effective program. We're going to leave it alone. So that message was vitally important, and it was coming from Republican leadership. Then you look at the House, and the House was at that time trying to really gut the program, you know, putting in more onerous restrictions on who has access to it and for how long and um, how you have to apply and it, just a host of things, most of which did not make it through into the final bill in large part because of the Republican leadership in the Senate. So, you know, at that moment, even three years ago, you're watching some really important bipartisan work. Once the farm bill passed and some of these restrictions were not included, the administration decided to try to promote them through regulations. 
And that is a novel experience, um, and certainly in the anti-hunger movement, but I think in a lot of social programs in the United States, that you, the regulatory system is designed to um, supplement and expand upon the legislative mandates that come from Congress. So, so the people that are your representatives that you've elected are acting based on what they believe to be what their constituents want. And the, the regulatory process is very undemocratic. And it, but it was designed to be about the technical implementation of law and not to be new or different policy. This administration has made an art out of using that regulatory policy to push forward the agenda they could not get through Congress. So we've seen a number of regulations that would have seriously uh, hamstrung state and local officials from seeking support for people who are struggling the most in their states. It's just a terrible, topsy-turvy way of looking at what this program is for. Um, and those are being challenged in court at this moment. Really taking advantage of the most vulnerable when... Mm -hmm switching gears to the Jewish perspective for a moment, mm -hmm. uh, so much of what our tradition teaches us is that it's those who are most vulnerable that we should care for and care about the most. Right, right. So for Mazon, you know, all we do is informed by our Jewish values and traditions. That, that's how we approach everything. So we, we think about what Betzelem Elohim means and thinking about how important it is to provide people with the dignity and respect that all human beings are owed, um, regardless of whether they're poor or not. And that it's not our place to judge other people. God does that, assuming you believe in God, that God is a part, that's where we look to God as human beings. We don't judge people for how they became to be in the circumstances that they are. We simply respond. And as you said, we look at the vulnerable and we say, our obligation to the community, to our country, is to provide them with whatever support we can. And when you think about we in this context, and you think about what it means to live in a democracy in a country like this, that our government is the expression of what we the people see as priorities and how we express our values. So that when your community has over 300 million people in it, it's hard for each of us to do one thing to help them all. So we gather together, form a community, that community we call the United States population, and we look at our representatives and say, you do what we want you to do to implement the values that we hold sacred. And that's a lot of what we've seen in programs that, for example, the New Deal, that's what the New Deal was, right? That sure. we see in the crafting of safety net programs since then and in upholding them since then. And what we find now is an experience of judgment that we have not seen before. That the idea that there's, there's something that these people have done, forget about not judging people if they make a mistake. It's as if they deliberately made a bad choice and ended up this way, and they should fix it themselves. We don't come from a tradition that says that. Um, and that really informs a lot of what we present when we go up on the hill or we talk to folks in the administration. For many in the American Jewish community, they view the history of Mazon and they think of collecting canned foods in their synagogues, mm. dropping it off. I remember a story that somebody in the Mazone staff uh, mentioned back when people were still coming into the office pre-pandemic, that occasionally you would even get somebody who would show up at the Los Angeles office with a, a, saying that they have canned goods to drop off. Yeah. When did Mazone make that transition from food collection to advocacy and why? So when Mazone was founded 35 years ago, um, it, Leonard Fine um, was um, the visionary who created Mazon. He always envisioned it as an advocacy organization. Mazon never provided food to people, ever, never, ever. What Mazon did do was it collected donations of money 
from the Jewish community and then partnered with direct service organizations all over the United States. Those organizations may provide food to individuals, most of them did, but our money was meant to help support staff and help support them to engage in work that would help to address either the underlying causes of hunger in their community or the nutrition safety network writ large that many were beginning to get involved with. Amazon created this network and infrastructure that connected all of these providers of food, food pantries, food banks, food bank associations, um, that some legal services offices that were themselves relatively small. Amazon was very small and scrappy in its early days. Um, we're still pretty small relative to other large or national anti-hunger organizations. And our money would not go far enough to purchase food for people. Because what we're really thinking about is, you know, it was a, before the pandemic, you know, 37 million people. Um, and, you know, you, and Betty probably can't do this math in your head, but you can think about what it might mean to have to spend a dollar 40, and that's on the low end per person per meal for almost 40 million people. We don't have that ability. But what we can do is we can leverage that which we collect and manage by using our greatest resource, which is our staff, to manage what we can do to change policy, to make it so that people's lives are better. The, the real work of social change is really slow. Um, and I think that, that that frustration can be very difficult for individuals who have less experience with advocacy. It's incremental, it takes time, it's messy, um, but that's our investment and that's where we feel we must spend our time uh, in order to have a meaningful impact. The, the largest anti-hunger charity in America is Feeding America. And Feeding America's budget, well, before the pandemic was $2.1 billion, which is a really, large budget and they have no wherewithal to be able to actually feed all of the Americans who are food insecure. Those networks of food banks that they manage are vitally important as a bridge for those people who either don't qualify for SNAP, who have to wait for their benefit or whose benefits run out. The average SNAP recipient runs out of benefit by the third week of the month. And that's where those food pantries where people can access food come in, that the food banks who are like food warehouses, right, provide the actual foodstuffs to the food pantries. And uh, it, it's, very, it's very important work, it's vital, but it is so much smaller than what the response must be and the federal government is that response. As I said, that's our community responding. And that's $90 billion a year that our federal government is spending on these benefits. And they're vitally important. And we see the relationship between the charitable sector and the government. And we understand that they work in concert, but one is the small modifier of the other. And that's why we put our energy into persuading that larger system to respond in a way that is both meaningful and compassionate. I was thinking a lot about that juxtaposition of the uh, relationship between the advocacy work and the charitable work. Mm -hmm. I think of in our own Torah, where it says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, in verse four, we're told, there shall be no needy among you. And then immediately three verses later in verse seven, we're told, but if there are those who are in need among you, don't close your hands or your hearts to them. Right. That right. we're given this divine obligation to create a society where there, there will be nobody who's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But we're also told the reality of this moment that as long as people are vulnerable, we need to help those who are vulnerable. 
Right. Most exactly. synagogues, my synagogue included, uh, we work with other churches and synagogues in our area to staff weekly the Interfaith Food Pantry of the Oranges right. uh, to help those who are most food insecure in our communities. Uh, and I, I know most houses of worship are involved in that type of chesed work. Mm -hmm. I think you're right that that work seems more fulfilling, right? When you have selfishly, when you have direct interaction with those who are in need and you see that by helping provide food for their table, for their children, you're making a difference at that moment in their yes. lives. You feel like you're doing something where the advocacy work is slow and it's like you're pushing a boulder up a mountain at times. What are ways that we can get the organized Jewish community, Jewish institutions, synagogues like my own, to be more involved in that advocacy work. So my synagogue like yours, this is a, we have a, a Christmas dinner program that we've done. We do stuff at Thanksgiving, and then we have regular food, canned food drives. Um, we work with SOVA, which is a project of Jewish Family Service here. Um, and one of the... Some tipping point moments, I think, for people in my my synagogue came when those who have been uh, engaged in this work for a long time with the congregation came to me and said, "Okay, I see the same people year after year that are still struggling. Okay, I'm coming to work with you because I need to change that." So there's a there's a parable about babies drowning in the river. And uh, a woman is walking upstream and she sees a baby floating downstream in the middle of the river and rushes in to rescue the baby. And as she gets to shore, she looks back and there's another baby in the water and she rushes in to save that baby. Another woman comes walking by and the first woman says, oh my God, help me. Someone is putting babies in the river. We have to save them. And they sort of form a bit of a chain. A third woman comes and she's looking at these women and she says nothing to them. And they say, help us. Someone's throwing babies in the river. You have to come and help us. And the woman looks at them, continues to walk at a much more rapid pace upstream. And they say, where are you going? She said, I'm going upstream to find out who's throwing the babies in. I'm going to stop them. This is what advocates wow. do. It's a very, yeah, I love that. Metaphor. It's a really wonderful parable. It is, it is our job to make certain that those who have to stand in that river rescuing the babies don't have to continue to do that. So when you get upstream, first you got to get up there and then you have to persuade those who are in charge, in control to change what they are doing. This is why it's hard, but it's unbelievably rewarding. Because when you've made that change, you have literally affected millions of people. And our job, and Mazone has a niche in the anti-hunger movement that is not just important to us, but provides an important service because we are smaller. So we can be a little more nimble. And our job is we look for those places where there are communities, populations, issues that have been unaddressed or underaddressed because they have unique needs and challenges. So we can pinpoint that which we are trying to ask instead of global asks that we join in to say, you have to increase the SNAP benefit. We also say, do you realize that there are currently serving military members who are struggling with food insecurity and there's a glitch in the law that won't let them get SNAP. We need to fix that. And that kind of work is not only essential in the systems of the United States, but there's a real concrete change that you can push for and try to get implemented. We see the same thing in the work that we're doing around tribal nations, where there's terrible struggles with poverty and access to benefits. And, and then we see in the pandemic that they have been horrifically challenged by this disease. And we are, we are an, an unlikely partner in some ways. And we have the ability 
to listen in a way that I think that others do not. And that gives us a way to help to amplify those voices that might not otherwise be heard. Uh, and the concerns that we have about single mothers, it doesn't mean that they are small parts of our population. In fact, the majority of people struggling with poverty are female-headed households. But no one understands or appreciates what's different about that household that we need to shift our thinking around SNAP. And this sure. would be particularly true around work requirements in SNAP. Sure. Because when you're a single parent, this is the challenge of every day of your life how to care for your children and how to provide for them at the same time. Yeah. And there's no easy answers without the kind of supports that we don't really see much in this country. So I don't know if that really answered your question. Jesse, no, I, but... Absolutely. I'm wondering, we have no idea what the future holds with regards to this pandemic. I think mm -hmm. it would be a lot easier for all of us to get through this if we knew by X date, things will be back to normal, whatever normal looks like. Right. Um, what is at stake with regards to um, current support for those who are food insecure during this pandemic? Um, I think that the, the concerns of all of us are the concerns of the poor and the vulnerable. So we're, we're frightened for our own health and the health of those we love. We are cognizant that we are limited in where we can go and with whom we can interact. We are struggling to balance the importance of social distancing with the need for human interaction. And we see so many newly unemployed that the financial burden of trying to manage your life in general, let alone during a time of crisis like this, is being writ large across the United States. So their, their concerns are our concerns, but their access to solutions is not the same as ours. They are struggling to keep their heads above water. Many of them are essential workers because a significant majority of those who are on SNAP actually work. They are in paid employment. It's just not enough. Right, we use that word essential worker uh, and yeah. that I think we use that term to make ourselves feel better. That right. so many of us have the luxury of being able to work from home uh, well, quarantining while staying socially distant uh, and uh, making uh, more than what we would call a living wage, where in order to make minimum wage, which in many states is below a living wage, they're going to work, having regular human contact, be it at a gas station or a grocery store uh, mm -hmm. or um and a food target, a food processing plant, an Amazon, uh, right. you know, warehouse. Right, or public transportation. Putting I mean, their own lives at risk. Correct, and it, it's in order for them to be able to get whatever small paycheck they can. And they are, they are living the, the worst nightmare of all of this. Um, and... This is why I think there's a sense of urgency on the part of, of advocates like me and those with whom I work at Mazone to get this federal government to respond with as much support as it possibly can. Because the anxiety and the fragility of their lives is only going to get worse if we don't step in and give them the kind of support and stability they need to be able to maintain their health and their well-being, not just for themselves, but for their families. And there's, there's just no excuse for our lawmakers not to step up and do the right things. And I am disappointed that this has become partisan in the last 
iteration of what would have been um, the most recent relief bill that died because the Republican-led Senate would not take it up. And then when the administration engaged in direct negotiations with the leadership in the House, they refused to compromise in any way. And the House was asking for what those of us who are aware of what things cost and what is going on here thought was pretty minimal. And yet the federal government said, we're not going to do that. And there's no articulated reason why we won't, just that we're not doing that. And just think, where is your humanity? Where is that compassion? I understand how important it is to maintain a country that has more limited debt. But I've seen this country go into debt over bailing out banks or bailing out car corporations. I mean, it's like- Giving tax breaks to millionaires. Right, but why not? (laughs) We have to go into debt. Is it not better to go into debt because we are saving lives? And, And who are they to choose? That these people are expendable. Right. So this is what keeps coming up for me when we talk about essential workers. I think for many people, it's expendable workers. They think of people as expendable. I think our president has actually said that in so many words. So on that note, um, there are some who would say, I would say that this election is the most important election of our lifetime, certainly of my lifetime, um, (laughs) and could have the greatest consequences that we can't even imagine. I'm not sure any of us could have imagined in 2016 a reality that we're currently living in. So what is at stake when it comes to SNAP, when it comes to helping those who are food insecure and vulnerable in this upcoming election on not just the federal level, but on on the state level as well? So I think early in the pandemic, we had some hope that um, the bipartisan enthusiasm for SNAP and Um, and unemployment and other kinds of government benefits that are like the staples of the United States safety net had again returned to a place of bipartisan support and leadership. And in the last, let's say three weeks, um, it's become obvious that that is not the case. Um, That whatever drove that initial sense of response and urgency, the responsibility being taken by our lawmakers, it seems gone. And again, we have devolved to a partisan experience. Mazone is a, is a nonpartisan organization. We, are, we engage in advocacy work to, to move our issue forward, to move policy change forward, but we don't engage in campaign work of any kind. So while, you know, personally, I can say that I see how momentous this election is, um, Mazone sees every election as momentous, because there will be changes in leadership. And with that comes greater or lesser knowledge and understanding of the history of this country and what we have done to establish ourselves as a nation that has both compassion and wisdom as its governing priorities. And we are determined, no matter what, that we will continue to to fight to preserve those benefits that exist and to expand them where we can and to make certain that it is never, ever acceptable to think of people as expendable in any way. There's a midrash in the book of Psalms where we're told when one is asked in Olam Haba in the world to come, in the rabbinic idea of afterlife. What was your work that you did? And you answer, I fed the hungry. Then you'll be told this way to the gate of the Lord, enter it because you fed the hungry, suggesting that helping those who are food insecure, feeding the hungry, the most vulnerable Mm -hmm. is the most essential work that we can do. We're told regularly in the middle of the Torah when we talk about agricultural laws, that we must leave the corners of our fields untithed for those who 
uh, need it most for those who are gathering uh, what we have dropped from the threshing floor. And I think that that really is a mantra of what it means to be Jewish, that we, we help those who are food insecure. I think what Mazon is teaching us is the work that we do with food collection and food pantries is essential, but is not enough. It can't just be that because those who are food insecure, they, they can't survive on that, that and that alone. They mm -hmm. need expanded benefits from these government assistant programs. Right. Well, they need us to respond as a community. So individual acts at tzedakah are important. They're, they're a beautiful expression of people's commitment to those in, in their immediate vicinity. But we feel very strongly that we all also make a commitment to all of our neighbors in America, no matter how many thousands of miles apart we may be. And the way we do that is through the policies of our government. This is where we are able to express what we mean when we say that we are going to change how it is to how it should be. That we, the people, have the power to express that to our leaders and to hold them accountable so that they are the best that they can be, so our country is the best that it can be. Amen. Thank you so much to Abby Liebman for joining us for today's episode of Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Votes. To learn more about the advocacy work that Mazon is doing with regards to expanding SNAP benefits, with regards to supporting military families, to learn more about their This Is Hunger uh, initiative and display exhibit that we actually hosted at our synagogue a couple of years ago, you can go to mazone.org. You can follow Mazone on Twitter at M-A-Z-O-N-U-S-A. Of course, you can follow me at Twitter, as always, at, at J-M-O-L-I-T-Z-K-Y. November's election will be here before you know it. Don't forget to make sure you are registered to vote. If you are requesting a mail-in ballot, make sure you do what is necessary in your state to receive that ballot, receive it on time, and send it in on time, especially given the current crisis with the United States Postal Service. And we know what is at stake in this election. Until next time, everyone, take care. <laughs>